Hebrews chapter 11. For the sermon this morning, we're going to be looking at just the first couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 12 to understand what's being exhorted uh, in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 12. We have to go back a little bit into chapter 11 and see where the writer to the Hebrews begins this exhortation. In fact, we're going to actually go back into chapter 10 and begin in verse 32 of chapter 10. We'll read all the way through chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, And accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Yet for in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man, one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sands which, sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them, And having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In the first two verses of chapter 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I wonder if someone were to ask you, 
What metaphor would you use to describe the Christian life? Let's say it's a friend of yours who's searching and wondering, what is Christianity all about? What, is, what does it mean to walk with Christ? And they said, if you could think of an analogy, a metaphor to use that would describe the Christian life, what it looks like to live with and for Jesus, what analogy would you use? I wonder if maybe there are some ideas coming into your mind about what sorts of metaphor, analogy you might use to describe the Christian life. Some might say, you know, the Christian life is like entering through a gate into a pleasant meadow and sitting there in the middle of this pleasant meadow resting and enjoying the gentle breeze and the, the, the sweet sunlight and just resting there. Now, is that an accurate description of the Christian life? In some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. If you're a Christian, you have ceased from your works when it comes to your salvation. And you have entered into the precious rest that only Jesus gives. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so in some ways, entering into fellowship with Jesus, union with Jesus, is like entering into a pleasant meadow where we rest in his grace. But certainly, that illustration doesn't capture the idea of what it looks like to live day in and day out in this world as we pursue faithfulness to Christ. Yes, we are resting in His grace, but think about the types of metaphors the Bible uses, the New Testament uses, to describe what it looks like to live the Christian life. For example, Ephesians 6 What metaphor is used in Ephesians 6 to describe the Christian life? Warfare, right? We are in a war, and we are told to take up the armor of God because day after day, as a Christian, you are in a battle against a real enemy, against a real foe who would love to destroy your faith. And so we are exhorted by metaphor in Hebrews 6, take up the armor of God and go into the battle and fight day after day the assaults and the attacks of the enemy. It's warfare. Or think about some of the other other metaphors or images that are used to describe the Christian life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, as Paul is exhorting uh, his young helper, Timothy, and he describes his life like the life of a soldier, very similar to the life of warfare described in Ephesians 6. And and he says no soldier who's been enlisted worries about the common day-to-day affairs of life. He has a specific task given to him, faithfulness, that he might honor the one who enlisted him. You're a soldier, and you are called to be faithful day in and day out in the task that's been entrusted to you, the Apostle Paul says, to Timothy. In that same passage, he compares the Christian life to a hardworking farmer, The hardworking farmer, what does a hardworking farmer do? He goes into the field day after day to labor, to sow, and eventually to reap the fruit of his efforts and his labors. So what's the point of all that? What does that have to do with Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 2? It's simply this. The Christian life is never described on the pages of the New Testament as a life of coasting. It's never described as a life of passivity. The image is never that we are just sitting in our lazy boy waiting for heaven. 
The images used to describe the Christian life are images of endurance, activity, faithfulness, having a mind set on a particular goal and pursuing that goal day after day through effort. Yes, resting in the grace of Christ, but also striving to be faithful day after day to the one who has enlisted us. Well, the image that we're considering this morning in Hebrews 12 is no different. The metaphor is that of a race. We're told that we, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, we are in a race. And the idea in this passage is not that we're racing against one another. We're not trying to elbow one another back and work our way to the front of the pack so that we can win the race. Paul uses that sort of illustration in 1 Corinthians 9 when it comes to racing, but not to say that we should be competing against one another. That's a different topic. But here, the idea is not racing against one another. Here, the idea is we're trying to make it to the finish line. This is not, the race described here in Hebrews 12, is not a sprint. It's not the 100-meter dash. The race that's described in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, is a marathon race. It is a long-distance race that requires long-distance endurance. The theme is endurance. Uh, We see that if you were Listening as, as we read through the end of Hebrews 10 and through Hebrews 11, the idea of endurance, the word endurance, comes up again and again and again. Endured, they endured, they endured, they endured, and they endured by faith. They trusted God, they trusted him, they believed him. They believed his promises, they believed his word, and believing, they endured. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and again, we're told, run this race with endurance. It's a long-distance race, not a sprint. And as believers, we are called to not just run quickly at the beginning, but to begin the race and then to faithfully run the race day after day after day after day after day until we reach the finish line. It's a race of endurance. I am not much of a runner myself, and I've never actually run more than four miles, but I could imagine what it would be like to run a marathon. Maybe some of you have run marathons. I can only read about them. I've never done them myself, but I would imagine that as you begin this marathon, you begin with a sense of excitement and thrill, especially think about something like the Boston Marathon. Thousands of people around you, and you set off on this race, this marathon, with a sense of thrill and excitement. And then if it's me in that race, then probably after, well, I won't give a specific mileage for myself, but let's say for a marathon runner, probably after about 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 miles, you start to feel it a little bit. Your feet start to hurt. Your side starts to cramp up. Your legs are getting weak and weary. And you're probably, at least some I would imagine on that race, are beginning to wonder Why did I let my friends talk me into this? Why did I begin this race? And and as as you continue to run and experience the weakness and the weariness and and the pain, you start to even wonder, you know, maybe I should just get off the track. Maybe I should just go ahead and, and and step out of the race and go find my car and drive all the way back down to Virginia and be done with this whole marathon idea. But then as we're running, imagine that 
you are running between this great crowd of people on either side of the race course. And, and as you run, looking forward, you're hearing this great crowd of people cheering you on. And, and, and as you listen closely, you start to realize these individuals, every single one of them, this great big crowd of people, consists of people who have already run the same race. And they have made it to the end. And as you run their race, they're calling out to you saying, keep going. You can do it. I was right where you were. I knew what it was to feel that pain and that weakness and that tiredness, that discouragement. I knew what it was like to be in your place. I wanted to give up at times, but I endured and I finished the race. And they're saying, you can do it. Keep running. We did it. We made it. I think that captures something of the idea of what's going on in Hebrews chapters 11 and 12. Hebrews chapter 11, as verse 1 of 12 tells us, consists of this great cloud of witnesses. And this great cloud of witnesses, they're not witnesses in the sense that they're watching you or observing you. Witness can be used in that sense. If we say you witnessed something, it's you observed it, you watched it, you saw it. That's not really the idea here. They're not witnesses in the sense that they're watching you, but they're witnesses in the sense that they are bearing witness. They are testifying. They are telling about something. And they're telling you over and over again that the race is worth it. That you shouldn't quit. That you should keep enduring because the one who promised is faithful. And they made it. And they were just like you in all of your weakness. God sustained them. They made it to the end. And now they are testifying to you as you run your race. You can make it too. Whatever the discouragement might be, Whatever you might be feeling that's causing you to think, is it really worth it to run the Christian life, the Christian race? Is it really worth it to keep trusting in Jesus in the midst of, of this situation? They would say over and over again, this great cloud of witnesses, yes, it is worth it. Keep running. It's the picture that's being painted for us here in Hebrews chapter 12. We've all had been given a particular race. God has set before you a race to run. That race, like any race, will have varying seasons to it. There will be seasons in your Christian life, in your Christian marathon, in which it feels like you are on flat ground or maybe even going downhill and, and running is easy and smooth and it feels like you could run for, for miles more. There are other seasons in the Christian life that are like running uphill, and they are tiring and wearisome, or wearying. And as we make our way up this hill, we feel the full effects of life in a fallen world and in a hard world, and we start to wonder, can I make it? Do I even want to make it? Or is it better to just abandon this whole Christian race altogether? The writer of Hebrews is exhorting us through the example, the faithful witness of many who have gone before us. It's worth it. Keep running. So the theme then of this verse, these two verses in chapter 12, is the theme of endurance. We are on a marathon, and, and specifically it has to do with the endurance of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is the chapter of faith. Example after example of men and women who had faith to the very end. They trusted God. They believed him to the very end. What we're being told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, 
is keep trusting, keep believing, have faith in the promises of God to the very end. Endure, don't give up. The theme is endurance. The Hebrews had started off their race very well. The people reading this uh, letter, these Hebrew Christians, they had started off their race very well. Uh, we read back in chapter, ch- chapter 10 how at the beginning of their race, they, they suffered all sorts of things, but they suffered them joyfully. They rejoiced to have their possessions taken away. They rejoiced to share in the sufferings of other Christians. They were happy, in a sense, to suffer for Christ because they believed that they had a great reward in Christ. But that same confidence, that faith, it seems in this letter from many other places in this letter, it seems that that faith is no longer there, at least not the the same expression of it, the same force of it. Their faith has started to grow weary and tired. Some have started to doubt. Some have started to wonder if they ought to go back to Judaism. Some have been faced with particular temptations. Some have even stopped meeting together with believers altogether in Hebrews chapter 10. They just decided, you know, it's not even worth it to gather, gather anymore with the, with the church. He says, you should not forsake the assembling with one another, as is the habit of some. Some have just given up. The writer to the Hebrews says they, they started well, but they're not running as well now. And so he sees the need to exhort them, to encourage them, to keep running But not only does he exhort them, he also provides them with the way that they should do it. And so this morning, we'll just consider two aspects of what it looks like to run the race of endurance, the marathon that Christ has called us to. And first, it looks like wearing the right attire. And second, it looks like looking in the right direction. We should wear the right attire if we're going to endure to the end in our race, and we should look in the right direction if we're going to endure to the end. So first, we should wear the right attire. We should have the right clothes on. Look at verse 1, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So specifically, considering the phrase, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The imagery here is from the first century with regard to how a runner in the games would dress, or we should say, how they would not dress, the lack of attire they would wear in a race. Because a runner in the first century would not be wearing his typical garment and robe that would go down to his feet, his tunic. Instead, he would strip himself of those things, and to be honest, he would run perfectly naked in the race. And the reason he would do that is because there's no restriction. There's nothing to slow him down. And and what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to us is, be like that runner. You're you're in a long-distance race. Nobody in a long-distance race would wear a suit and tie and dress shoes with a backpack on, carrying weights in their hands. Nobody would do that. Anyone who's in a marathon, even today, would wear the minimal amount of clothing. They would have very nice tennis shoes, lightweight tennis shoes on, so that there's nothing restricting them and restraining them in their run of endurance. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that's how we should dress as we run the race of endurance. He says we should do this in two ways. 
Uh, First, we should get rid of every encumbrance. Lay aside every encumbrance, he says. That's the first thing. And then secondly, we should lay aside every sin, the sin that so easily entangles us. And so two different aspects of what should we take off as we run the Christian race. First of all, we should take off every encumbrance. And an encumbrance is just something that weighs you down or hinders you. It's not necessarily something sinful in itself. It's not something that's inherently immoral necessarily. But it's something that is causing your faith in Christ to stumble, to trip up, to grow weak and dull and tired. It might be something that's perfectly fine for other people, but it's not fine for you. And the reason it's not fine for you is not because you're a legalistic Christian, but because it's not helping your faith. It's ruining it. It's destroying it. And what sorts of things might that be? What might be an encumbrance or a hindrance or a weight that's not necessarily sinful in itself, but is causing you to stumble in your faith? Rather than giving specific examples of what that might be, it's helpful just to ask questions of our lives. Are the things that we are giving ourselves to, are these things that are dulling my spiritual life? Are these things cooling my love for Christ? Are they causing me to grow cold and indifferent to the Lord Jesus? Are the things that I'm filling my life up with, are are these things causing me to be indifferent or numb to eternal things, to eternal realities? We're told in Colossians 3 that we should set our minds on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Are the things that I'm filling my life up with, are they helping me to set my mind on Christ? Or are they numbing me to eternal things? Do the things that I'm filling my life up with, do they cause me to be more worldly in my thinking? more entrenched in my love for the things of this world as they're separated from the glory of Christ. If it does, whatever it might be, if what we're pursuing and filling our life up with is numbing and, and ruining our faith in Christ, then we're being told here, put it aside. It's an unnecessary weight. He's not telling us to be legalistic Christians who are, who are constantly looking to make more rules for ourselves, but he's, he's wanting us to be Christians who have a thriving, flourishing confidence in the Lord Jesus. And anything that strips us of that should be laid aside. Or if it's something that can't be laid aside, like good things that are necessary in our lives, like families, if, if we're married, our spouse, our children, our work, those are all good things, but we turn them into bad things because of the way we use them. And he's saying if you're using them, if you're viewing them in a bad way, in a selfish way, in a worldly way, then renew your thinking about them. Put them, put them aside because they're hindering you in your race. But then secondly, not only do we put aside encumbrances, we also lay aside sin. We strip ourselves of sin so that we're no longer entangled by it. He says the sin which so easily entangles you. The ESV, if you have that translation, says the sin which clings so closely. It's never far away, even for the Christian. Sin is never far away, and it entraps you, it ensnares you, it entangles you far more easily than you expect. And the point here is that when we allow it room in our hearts, when we allow sin to entangle us, it will always have a damaging effect on our faith. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, you can. Hebrews chapter 3, in verses 12 to 13, we read about the hardening effect of sin. 
Our hearts are hardened when we allow ourselves to embrace and welcome sin into our lives. Hebrews 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if you allow it room in your heart. Sin tolerated in the heart distorts our thinking. Always. It distorts the way we think about God. We think we are thinking the right way about God, but sin that we've allowed into our lives, it distorts it. We, we can't think rightly about God because our minds are being shaped by the deceit of sin that we've welcomed into our hearts. It diminishes our joy. It snuffs out our hope. You cannot run an enduring, thriving Christian life when you are allowing yourself to be entangled by sin. And yet the deceitfulness of sin is found in the fact that it appears so innocent. We think we can have just a little bit of it and that it really won't make all that much of a difference in our Christian life. As one apologist put it, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. The person who quoted, who penned that quote sadly, fell into the very thing he warned us against, which just gives further evidence of its truthfulness. Sin will always do more damage than you expect it to. I always find it interesting when people try to domesticate and raise certain wild animals as pets. So you've probably seen these sorts of news stories online. I read an article about a lady who attempted to raise a chimpanzee in her home as a pet. She got the chimpanzee when he was three years old. She named him Travis. She fed it. She took care of it. Uh, She cuddled with it. She played with it. She would even put it into her truck with her with a baseball cap on and would drive around town. Would even take it into restaurants with her. For all appearance sake, if you were to see this woman with her pet chimpanzee, the chimp was harmless. It was just a domesticated pet. One day, Travis decided to viciously attack a lady who was visiting this owner's home. The lady who was attacked survived the attack, but barely. Her face was absolutely maimed by the chimpanzee. If you have it, I mean, chimpanzees are radically strong animals. And this chimpanzee absolutely ruined this woman's physical appearance. She lost her eyes, her, her mouth. Her, her lips, her nose, she lost both of her hands. It's a devastating story. And it's also a very accurate picture of what sin does. We think that we can domesticate sin and keep it close, but it, just like a, a chimpanzee, is, is not meant, at least not this side of the fall, I don't know what it would have looked like in the garden necessarily, but at least this side of the fall, a chimp is not meant to be in a living room. And as believers who are running a race for Christ, sin is never meant to be in your heart. I'm not saying you will never struggle with sin, but it should never be something that you allow room to dwell there, to inhabit your heart, to make itself comfortable, to treat it like a domesticated pet. Because just like that chimpanzee suddenly and unexpectedly attacked 
a lady. It was assumed he was just a domestic pet, but he devastatingly attacked this woman. And so also, sin will devastatingly attack our faith and our race. It will never leave us unaffected. And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying, lay it aside. Whatever that sin is, that particular sin even, that one sin in your life that you're treating like a domesticated pet, that you are in some ways putting at a distance, but it's always close enough for you to grab onto it when you need it. Whatever that sin might be, lay it aside, get rid of it, strip yourself of it, because you cannot run your race. You cannot be strong in faith and confident in Christ as long as you are embracing sin. Lay it aside, he says. And so that's the first aspect of running with endurance. We have to have the right clothes on, the right attire. We can only run well when we're wearing the right clothes. We can only run well when we lay aside the hindrances. We lay aside the sin that entangles us. But that's only the negative aspect of the instruction here. We're, we're told there what we should put away, what we should, in a sense, look away from. But then we move on in verse 2 to the positive aspect of the instruction, which is where we should look. So we, we lay aside sin, but we can't lay aside sin if all we're thinking about is laying aside sin. We'll get nowhere. We lay aside sin specifically by turning and looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so not only should we have the right attire on as we run the race, but we should be looking in the right direction. In fact, the word that's used in verse 2, let me go ahead and read verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The, the word that's used there, the phrase that's used there, is literally turning away from unto. We turn away from and to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we look away from the things that captivate our heart apart from Christ, the sin that entangles us, the, the worldly delights and pleasures that numb and nullify our faith. We turn away from those things as we turn unto the Lord Jesus, as we put our faith, confidence in him, we look to him. Again, I'm not much of a runner, but I would imagine that as you're running a marathon, if you're constantly looking off to the left and to the right or even behind you, your, your, your path is going is to be very zigzagged. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of wasted energy, wasted time, because you're running back and forth rather than in a straight line, in a line that's directly aimed at the destination. And the same is true of the Christian life. If we are not looking forward to Christ, if he is not the focus of our gaze, then we will be going to the left and to the right, and we will be hindered and slowed down in our faith and in our endurance. That's exactly what happened in the psalmist's life in Psalm 73, which we read earlier. So if you think about, Sean read that just a little bit ago, Psalm 73, what was going on in the psalmist's life as he wrote that, that psalm? Well, he was looking at the world around him. His eyes were, were fixed on the way things seemed to be working in life. He was looking at wicked people who seemed to have a life that was so much easier than his. He was looking at arrogant, violent, deceitful men who were happy. They weren't hungry. They were safe. They died in ease. They seemed to flourish in prosperity while they were on the earth. And he began to wonder why should I continue to, 
to trust God when they don't trust God, and they seem to have things so much easier than I do. And he says, I became envious of them. As I looked out at the world and I saw the kinds of lives that people were living around me, I became envious, and I started to wonder, maybe it would be better to live their kind of life and just have it easy. His eyes were fixed on the people around him, on the circumstance and the world. When did it change for the psalmist? He says, but then I came to the sanctuary of the Lord. In other words, I came and I set my eyes again on the glory of the Lord. And when I did that, it put things aright. I, I, I started to see reality with the right lens again. I saw that the end of the wicked is destruction and the end of the righteous is eternal life, glory forevermore. And he said, when I fixed my eyes on the Lord in the sanctuary, then I realized I was wrong. Entire perspective changed. That's what, that's what we're being told here in, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We're, we're being told, fix your eyes on Jesus. If you're, if you're looking around at circumstances and you're basing your understanding of reality on what you see moment by moment, if you're basing your understanding of God's goodness on what you see in other people's lives or what you experience in your own life right now in this moment, then you will certainly doubt the goodness of God, undoubtedly, at some point in your life. If that's determining whether or not you trust him, what you see going on in the world around you, you will not trust him. If we go back to Hebrews 11, there were some people who lived lives of faith and experienced a great deal of victory. We think of David fighting Goliath. And I think, man, that, that would have been wonderful to be David, to have trusted God and to immediately have seen victory, overcoming the enemy by God's power. Or uh, Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in the fire. And, and, and they saw immediate victory over their enemies because they trusted God. And, and we think that would, yes, there's God's goodness right there. I want to be like that, seeing God's faithfulness day after day in my life. But then we go on, and, and the tone of Hebrews 11 changes about halfway through, and it says, these are, these are some who have walked by faith, and, and they believed God, and there were great victories accomplished by them. But others who believed God, they were tortured, they were martyred, they were burned, they were sawn in two, they were killed. They didn't see the promises fulfilled in their lifetime, but they believed God. Why? Because they were looking to what was not seen they were trusting in the word and the promises of God. And so we're being told here, fix your eyes on Jesus. You can't see him with your eyes, but we see him in the word. And so fix your eyes on Jesus. And we do that by remembering that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Who is Jesus that we should fix our eyes on? He's the author of your faith. Uh, most Commentators take this to mean he is the one who gives you faith. He is the source, the originator of your faith. You would not have faith apart from Jesus planting it in your heart by his grace. But he didn't just plant it there. He will perfect it. He will complete it. Just like we're told in Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we should look to Jesus remembering he will not let me go. I feel weak. I feel like I can't endure, but I have the assurance and the certainty that he planted faith in my heart, and he will cultivate that faith all the way to the end, and he will bring it to perfection, to completeness. And so we run with confidence, looking to Jesus. But we not only look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith, we look to him as the perfect example of our faith. Look at what the writer goes on to say there in verse 2. 
says, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's no greater trial, of course, than the trial of the cross. We sang about that earlier in his robes for mine, the agony none can fathom. Nobody can enter into what Christ entered into in the hours of his suffering on the cross, even beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane. That is an experience and a suffering that only Christ and his Father know. Nobody can understand the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. And nobody can really comprehend the the true degree of shame involved in that. The cross, the most shameful uh, torture device imaginable at that time, the eternal Son of glory who was forever with his Father in glory, worshipped incessantly by the angels, suffering on this torture device, mocked by his creatures who rebelled against him. It's shame. Why did Christ endure that? How did he endure that? The writer of Hebrews says he endured it for the joy set before him. What was the joy that was set before Christ? As Christ entered into his suffering, as he prayed in the garden and then continued his trajectory toward the cross and suffered there and died there, what was it that compelled him to do it? The joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? I think it comes down to two primary things. First of all, the joy set before Christ was was his own glory that he would enter into. Christ knew that following his sufferings would come glory. We read that in John 17, verses 4 to 5. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is saying, I have, I have done the work. I've endured all that was required of me. Now, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus knew that after his suffering would come glory, and it was that joy of entering into his glory that compelled him to endure the suffering of the cross. Now, how did Jesus know that after his suffering would come glory? How, did you, how, how could Jesus be so confident that after his suffering would come glory? Well, I think sometimes we underestimate the full degree of the humanity of Christ. How did he learn? How did he grow? Through the Scriptures. He studied God's Word. He understood God's Word. He saw what the Scriptures said about himself. And what did the Scriptures say about him? Well, 1 Peter chapter 10, uh, chapter 1, there's no 10 in Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, we read, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know, here's what's important, so we're talking about the prophets and their prophecies. In other words, we're talking about the Old Testament Scriptures, And as the prophets put down in the Old Testament scriptures what the Holy Spirit inspired them to put down, it says they sought to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, what Peter is saying is that the Old Testament scriptures recorded for us through the prophets, they tell us two things about Christ. One, that he would suffer. Two, that after his suffering would would be glory. That glory would follow. Jesus was holding on to that promise as he went to the cross. He was doing exactly what we read in Hebrews 11 verse 1. He was assured of what he had hoped for. He was convinced of the truth of the things he'd not seen because he saw them on the pages of the scripture. And so he trusted God and he endured the cross because he knew 
through the word of God, by faith in the word of God, that he would enter into his glory after his sufferings. But not only, that's, that's not the only element of his joy, there's another element of the joy of Christ. And this is the great multitude of redeemed individuals that would be gathered to himself because of his suffering. What was the joy set before Christ? It was his glory, but it also was the full reward of his suffering, which was a multitude, millions and millions of redeemed individuals that would be with him for eternity, given to him by his Father. And again, how did Jesus know that through his suffering he would gather in a great multitude of sinners? How did he know that? Through the Scriptures. It's Isaiah 53, verse 11 As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. In other words, his heart will know joy after his anguish. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. As Jesus went to the cross, enduring the suffering there, despising the shame, he was holding on to this promise from his Father that the one who would suffer for the iniquity of others, would also justify the many, would gather them to himself, and his soul would be satisfied. It would rejoice in the fullness of his reward. So here's the point then. Jesus is not only the one who gives you faith and sustains that faith to the end. Jesus is the perfect example of faith. And so as we run the race of endurance, we are looking to Jesus as the one who gives and sustains our faith, but also the perfect pattern for how we're to endure We look to the promises of God in Christ. We cling to what we can't see. We lift our eyes up from the reality of this present world, and we fix them on the Lord Jesus Christ. And where is he? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was given everything that was promised to him after his suffering. God was faithful. He believed his father, and his father was faithful to reward him. And so we are being exhorted here, follow the example of Jesus in your discouragements and in your suffering and in your trials in this life, just as Jesus clung to the promises of his Father and just as Jesus has entered into the fullness of the joy promised him by his Father, so you also, through your suffering, through your afflictions, through your trials and discouragements, as you run the Christian race, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to his promises. Believe what you can't see right now and look forward to the joy that is promised you through Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. I'll finish with this. It's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, four times it's mentioned that Jesus has taken his seat at the right hand of God. And what we read in Hebrews 10, in particular, is that the priests in the earthly temple, it says they stand and they make daily sacrifices, day after day after day, year after year after year. They make sacrifices over and over again. They're standing in the temple. But then we read in that same section, right after the verse talking about the priests standing in the temple because they're making sacrifices over and over again, we read that Jesus offered himself one time as the sacrifice and he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus is not the priest who's continuing to make sacrifices, continuing to do the work of redemption. He has finished the work of redemption. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God. There is nothing else required for the redemption of his people when it comes to his salvific work, and he is reigning there, and he is gathering to himself every single one of his children, and he will sustain them all the way to the end. And we are being exhorted here, look to Jesus. 
Remember his finished work. Fix your eyes on him. Trust him. Believe him. And endure through his promises and through his word. Let's finish with that. Let's pray, and then we'll stand and sing together. Our Father, we thank you that we do have the firm foundation of your word to stand on. We thank you that we don't have to base our understanding of reality, the understanding of who you are or your goodness on merely on our own experiences and circumstances. But we thank you that you have given us your word and all of your promises to hold on to and to cling to when we are discouraged and confused by life. And so, Father, we do pray that you would help us as your people to run this race with endurance, to not grow weary and lose heart in our confidence in Christ and in our devotion to him, but we pray that you would sustain us by your mercy, keep us looking to your truth, your promises, and help us to run with endurance all the way to the end. We thank you that our great high priest is interceding for us even now, and that we have the the certainty and the assurance that he will hold us fast all the way to the end. Help us to rest and yet to endure through the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.